This program deals with devil worship and satanic beliefs. It contains explicit scenes and descriptions of violent crimes and rituals. Americans are asking, who attacked our country? You have declared a subliminal jihad against the United States. Can you tell us why? Everything pertaining to what's happening has never come to the surface. The world will never know the true facts of what occurred, my motives. And night fell on a different world. And Iblis is thinking, you know, I should be getting this position, not Adam, and this guy is created from dirt. And how does the army feel about you being head of the Temple of Set? And the conspiracy theorists can say what they will. But... I want you to give me power over Adam, and I want you to give me soldiers and minions and all of these things. The people have, have so much to gain and have such a material Good afternoon. You are tuned into a special presentation of the Warlocks of Palo Alto, The Grateful Dead, Steal Your Face, Part 2, Episode Number 34 of Subliminal Jihad. Picking up from Part 1, Dimitri and Khaled discuss the extent of Timothy Leary's relationship with the CIA, stories about him getting MK'd lobotomized in prison in the 1970s, Terence McKenna and Robert Hunter's letter correspondence about the Claxton men and the Jabba the Hutt Jedi Jinn they encountered on DMT, Bob Weir and Mickey Hart's membership in Bohemian Grove, and how the dead served as cultural shock troops for the pernicious geopolitical neoliberalism that now dominates every aspect of our culture. Enjoy. covered some of this stuff uh, of like the acid test, the Grateful Dead, moves to San Francisco uh, just in time for the Summer of Love in 1967 and their home on a become becomes a central, you know, chill pad for this whole hippie thing. That's the foundational story of the Grateful Dead. I think we can sort of move on to like some more tangential figures that can kind of flesh out. I mean, everybody kind of knows what they did. They became a jam band. They just like the sixties never ended for them. They just traveled around the country, like distributing LSD everywhere and having jam band shows. And it's it, around. Jam, <clears throat> jam, yeah. Dan, political, uh, you know. <laughs> and like, it's literally kind of been the same model from the early seventies to today. Like there's the, with the exception of Jerry Garcia being dead, uh, it's pretty much still that. So with that, I mean, I think, uh, the real thing is kind of, you know, uh, getting to this like critical question of, you know, what was this all some kind of op or part of an op or, you know, just, yeah, was this part of like a larger cultural shift that was managed? And so I think we have to talk a little bit about one of the main people that did interlock with the Grateful Dead from time to time uh, wasn't as direct an influence on them as Ken, as Ken Kesey, but this guy was connected to Tintesi, and that is Timothy Leary. And he's, you know, to call him a sus lord is like a real understatement. Um, this guy went everywhere, did everything. He was one of the Johnny Appleseeds of proselytizing LSD and all kinds of goofy pseudo-spiritualist concepts in the late 60s. He, uh, 
you know, he coined the very uh, McLuhan-esque phrase. Actually, it might have even been coined by McLuhan, but then Leary took it and ran with it, which is uh, telling these angry young youths to turn on, tune in, and drop out uh, at the height of the Vietnam War. So <clears throat> the way into this, I found a really interesting article by Walter H. Bauer, who was the author of Operation Mind Control, which I read a couple years back and is one of the kind of the really solid foundational text of the study of MK ultra and kind of speculating outward, like what was the actual extent of it? I think he published it in 1978 and I'd say overall, you know, it, it, it goes kind of all over the place and it's got all these different like interesting tangents, but kind of like Dave McGowan's program to kill the the overall weight of evidence contained in it is is pretty staggering and paints a very different narrative than the one that we get taught about how the 60s went down and um one of the central like cruxes in his book was evidence that he discovered about Timothy Leary and sort of um undisclosed connections that he had to the CIA both like when he was a Harvard psychology professor who got kicked out for giving LSD to undergraduates and like kind of very tiny, like embryonic acid test experiments. And then after he got, he and Richard Alpert, AKA Ram Dass got fired. They were given a mansion by a member of the <laughs> Mellon banking dynasty to oh, set up yes. the if, if foundation. And basically for several years, like hung out in Millbrook, New York at the Dietrich estate, uh, doing various like LSD parties. And I mean, really doing kind of what Ken Kesey was eventually going to do in like 1965. But, uh, Tim Leary was really the kind of pioneer and he had like Allen Ginsberg, and uh, obviously Richard Alpert. I think uh, Gordon Wasson was in and out of that mix. He also had a lot of Stanford connections. And I think Gordon Wasson was at one point the chairman of the Council on Foreign Relations. So, you know, we're like, we're roll- he was rolling with some heavy hitters uh, doing this uh, sort of, you know, gray area, maybe illegal, maybe unethical, uh, highly experimental research. And you know, I think even from there, you would have to say, uh, okay, the odds are pretty high that whether the CIA was paying him directly or the Mellon family was serving as a conduit for CIA funds into mind control, that one way or another, he seemed to have the quiet blessing of the government. And he eventually, um, he got kind of booted out of that place. Uh, weirdly enough, he... Uh, as this article I'm reading from notes, uh, was arrested by G. Gordon Liddy in 1965 at the Millbrook estate and went to jail with a big smile on his face. And almost 20 years later, he was debating Liddy, who eventually was a Watergate burglar and a a very sketchy character, um, uh, on the college lecture circuit, uh, receiving a minimum of 2,500 per appearance, still wearing that same smile. Um, And, but, you know, he... After becoming this media figure, he did get a he did get arrested, I believe, in 1969 or 1970 in Orange County, California, where he was running with a sort of a hippie, sometimes described as a hippie mafia game gang, kind of called the uh, Brotherhood of Eternal Love, that was producing right, orange yeah, sunshine that's, acid. That's a whole episode. Uh, oh yeah, yeah, because, exactly. Yeah, that's a real like all tangent. Sorts of- 
potential CIA links to the Brotherhood of Eternal Love. Uh, yes, and for the record, one of the people... Castle Bank or something. Yeah, I, oh, uh, yeah. yeah, you're right, you're right. I, that actually does probably go straight back to Lombardi, as does probably the the Mellon connections. Um, I think it was uh, Billy Mellon Hitchcock was the one, and his sister were the ones that uh, Peggy Hitchcock, or Peggy Mellon Hitchcock, uh, they were the ones that... Uh, that you know, were they were probably involved in kind of some sketchy banking things, maybe yeah, related to Castle um, and uh, yeah, the uh, the Brotherhood of Eternal Love. Uh, uh, according to uh, oh, I guess I'm reading this off of Mind Control Black Assassins, but it is true. Uh, <laughs> I just googled <laughs> it just to confirm, uh, and uh, I, I I've seen this in like you know slightly uh, more uh, mainstream sources than Mind Control Black Assassins, but. Uh, you know, one of the Brotherhood's major drug manufacturers and dealers was Ronald Hadley Stark of New York. The oh, Brotherhood yeah. was controlled by Ronald Stark, whom an Italian high court concluded had been a CIA agent since 1960. The Brotherhood's funds were channeled through Castle Bank in the Bahamas, a known CIA proprietary. Oh, okay, um, yeah, Ronald Stark. He's he's kind of um he's on the he's in the web in this story. Yeah, he deserves because he was probably a Gladio agent and probably CIA, and was this bizarre international man of mystery who was flying between Italy and like Laguna beach and got into this whole gang that Leary also showed up and started hanging out with. And, uh, you know, they, they kind of worshiped him as kind of their guru. Though one of the people I did note it here, one of the members of the, uh, brotherhood of eternal love definitely said that, uh, Oh yeah. Yeah. Robert Stubby Tierney said in this, uh, Lords of Acid, uh, OC Weekly article. I think it's a book, too. We could go off that book when we do an episode. Uh, yeah, Stubby drops a bombshell of his own. Unbeknownst to me, he, he says, Timothy Leary worked for the CIA. He came to infiltrate our gang. So this was like people were accusing Timothy Leary of kind of being in the CIA and trying to set people up. Now, he was arrested with a bunch of marijuana in 1970, and he got sent to... Where else? The Vacaville, California medical facility, which uh, is it's as more evidence comes out, definitely seems like it was the hotbed of MK Ultra mind control behavioral modification research on prisoners. Probably uh, certainly in the 1960s, 1970s, there are a lot of famous alumni of Vacaville, including Charles Manson, including Donald DeFreeze, uh, a.k.a. feared Field Marshal Sinq, uh, the leader of the Symbionese Liberation Army that kidnapped Patty Hearst, and uh, there were a lot of a lot of credible information around that that he was probably uh, conditioned or something. Like he was MK'd into becoming a Maoist insurgent, basically. Mm-hmm. So you know, there's a lot there, and of course. So in this article, like Walter Bauer actually has a pretty personal line in. He interviewed Leary a couple times and corresponded with him. He had corresponded with him in, I think, the late 70s. And actually, not only is this weird, but uh, in 1973, he was assigned to solitary confinement. So he got he got like sent to jail. He also fled to Algeria for a while and shacked up with Eldridge Cleaver the Black Panther Party leader, who is a fugitive at the time, but then, uh, like uh, Eldridge Cleaver became 
paranoid that he was working for the CIA, so he peaced out and lived in Switzerland with an arms dealer for a while, and then maybe went to Afghanistan, and then came back and I think got arrested. Um, oh yeah, also, he quote-unquote escaped from Vacaville Prison in 1970, allegedly helped by Cuban intelligence agents and the Weather Underground. Mm. Um, which a lot of people, a lot of people question even uh, that that was either a thing to set up the Weather Underground and Leary was in on it. He did admit to being an FBI informant in the 1970s, I think, to uh, rat on the Brotherhood of Eternal Love, the Black Panthers and the Weather Underground. So he is a confirmed snitch. But the question is, was he CIA? So Walter Bauer is like trying to find out. And uh, I guess he first wrote in 1978 when he was writing the book he came across a cia document with leary's name on it the cia memo directed agents to contact leary and company who were then operating an organization called the international federation for internal freedom if if the memo asked its agents to discover if any agency personnel were taking acid with this group the cia wanted to determine what if if really knew about what was then billed as the most powerful drug known to man lsd a drug which the agency was experimenting with in an attempt to create mind-controlled zombies and another earlier similar CIA document I found ordered agents to contact Aldous Huxley for the same reasons, but he wasn't able to find more information about it, and Aldous Huxley did have a lot of links to MKUltra via the Esalen Institute.
he wrote Back and Forth with Leary in July 1976, writing from prison. Leary flatly denied the government had contributed to his psychedelic research. He claimed that, quote, nobody ever went to jail because any testimony he might have given. Okay, well, now we know that's false. He explained that he had never used any form of behavior modification in his experiments, although a title of one of his papers had been How to Change Behavior. <laughs> he told me I could find out whether his grants were CI connected by writing NIMH and Harvard. Uh, he said, writing to me from jail, that if they were covertly CIA funded, he had no knowledge of it. All right, so he's already hedging, but anyways, like, he called the NIMH and Harvard, and they all had, like, quote, lost the records and didn't have it. Um, and but then something strange happened in 1977. Joanna Harcourt Smith Leary, uh, Leary uh, I guess his wife at the time and a coworker, told me they had tried to contact Leary for several months when he was in Folsom and he could not be found. After normal attempts through prison authorities had failed to locate him, they took their case to the press and gathered a number of famous persons to sign a petition protesting the disappearance of the Pope of Dope. Joanna told me that after the outcry in the media grown loud, prison authorities quickly located Leary and allowed her to visit him. She said that when at last she sat across the prison table from him, separated by a pane of thick glass, he looked very pale. She said he had his head completely shaved, had bruises on his body, and didn't seem like the man she'd known before. Before he was released from prison, I wrote him to ask if he had been mistreated in prison or subjected to aversive therapy or any other form of behavior modification. Leary said that he had never been mistreated at Vacaville. He wrote the administration of Vacaville, quote, probably ranks with the most enlightened in the country. His, quote, enlightened facility was where horrendous experiments such as anectine therapy had been conducted on non-volunteer inmates under CIA covert guidance. This is important. This ties right back to... Anectine stops the respiratory functions of the body, and the subject feels as if they are dying. An attendant must keep them breathing with a machine. As the panic sets in when the involuntary muscles quit, an attendant says, this is what will happen to you if you break the law. And just before the subject loses consciousness, the respiratory is turned on and the subject is brought back from the brink of death. So in a way, making them grateful dead... Mm. kind of mm. like near death ex- mm. this is just that's some dark shit i yeah, actually did not know that but anyways yeah, good, uh good, yeah grateful to you know having not had, be dead and dead to be brought yeah it's the same thing like i'm yeah. back you know and i'm grateful yeah mm. and and yeah, repeating that mantra to you this is what happens if mm. you break the law and so in the following correspondence i explained to leary what i'd found that the cia was the world's largest consumer of sandoz lsd that they worked with the bureau of narcotics the nimh leaa and other agencies to covertly give lsd to unwitting persons in quote real life settings leary's answer to that was that he did not think the CIA experimentation with LSD was very ominous. His conclusion was, quote, based on my 15 years of confrontation on the front lines of the struggle, parentheses, individual freedom versus state control, are these. Government behavior mod programs were trivial, peripheral, more benign than evil, ineffective, silly, and never a part of any basic policy. Um, okay. He called me a, quote, prosecutor and said that he was disappointed that I saw corruption and conspiracy within our government. He railed about, quote, liberal paranoia, saying that it is a thousand times more effective and pervasive than right-wing scientific efforts. He said that, quote, 99% of all psychologists are liberals. All prisons are networks of suspicion. There is no behavior mod conspiracy. Such rumors spread around among the liberal community are dangerous because they distract attention from the real problem, that the law enforcement establishment does not want to alter behavior. 
Ooh, okay. Uh, when I finally sat with Leary in Tucson years later, uh, we, we renewed acquaintances. A couple of his old house, friends were at our house. We're glad to see him. Uh, at, at, since I'd last seen him almost 10 years before, his nose appeared to have been broken and his dentures no longer fit. All agreed, after he left, that this was not the same man we'd known before he'd gone to prison. We couldn't tell if he changed because of the normal prison brutality or because he was under some great pressures or had been tortured. In those days, nobody believed in mind control. Few knew of the clandestine experiments on U.S. citizens which were run against their will and without their knowledge. The first thought I had when seeing the altered Leary was, he's been the victim of one of the secret prison mind control programs. So... Uh, they drank wine and chatted. Finally, he insisted that they go to a quiet place and make a tape-recorded interview. And um, and he said he'd just finished Operation Mind Control, sent it to the publisher. It was too late to get anything new to it, and I told Tim, frankly, I was weary of the subject. But he insisted that we tape an interview. I'll tell you things I never told anyone before, he said. I couldn't resist such a journalistic temptation. He started by congratulating me for breaking the CIA mind control story. I couldn't take full credit for that, but I listened, accepting his compliments. The, and he said, quote, the game you're playing and the stakes at which you're gambling. You may be wrong 99 times, but if you're right once, you've won a billion or whatever you're playing for. So keep going. Um, I certainly wasn't playing for the money. The stakes were higher. These stakes were no less than freedom of human thought and perhaps the remnants of democracy in the world. But maybe I was naive. Maybe I should write screenplays and make some money instead of running around the country researching the victims of CIA mind control experiments conducted in the streets of New York, San Francisco, Los (laughs) Angeles, and other cities, as well as in prisons, mental hospitals, and the ranks of the military services on unwitting and unvolunteering men, women, and children. Wow. I feel seen. I feel seen. I feel seen. Wow. (laughs) Uh, Okay. Uh, So uh, Leary goes on says, uh, the contract I'm making with you is I never lie. I'm wrong a lot of the time, but I'm going to tell you everything you ask me. I'm not going to hide anything. On the other hand, there and there is no question that I want to ask you. On the other hand, I want to know things. So it was to be a quid, quid pro quo then. I agreed to share with him any information I had on the CA's involvement with drugs and mind control, uh, but I told him, you know, fact was everything I knew except the personal details of certain survivors had already been made public. So here we go. Here, here's the meat of this interview. Uh, have you ever knowingly worked for the CIA, I asked. <clears throat> Leary says, if I were working for the CIA, I would have 10 people working, making a living, exposing me. If I were the CIA, I'd own New Republic. I'd own the new masses. I'd own Rolling Stone. I'd have 50 groups of people exposing the CIA. Do you think CIA people were involved in your group in the 60s, I asked? Without hesitating, Leary said, of course they were. I would say that 80% of my movements, 80% of the decisions I made were suggested to me by CIA people. I like the CIA, he said. The game they're playing is better than the FBI, better than the Saigon police, better than Franco's police, better than the Israeli police. They're a thousand times better than the KGB. So it comes down to, who are you going to work for, the Yankees or the Dodgers? Leary had this in common with people I knew at the Mellon Bank. Baseball metaphors, heavy baseball metaphors, same as Nixon used. I'd heard Leary use them since I met him in 1965. I wondered if it was just a coincidence. Leary drank his wine and drifted a bit, talking about his current favorite subject, outer space. I brought the conversation back to the subject of mind control, telling Leary some of the details I learned about the CIA's use of drugs for 30 years and their attempt to find the perfect, quote, recruitment pill, aphrodisiac, and amnesia drug. 
I explained the magnitude of the story and I told them that based on my interviews with survivors of the experiments and psychoscientists who'd done some of them, I had to conclude that the CIA had long ago reached their goal of creating the perfect security device short of assassination, one which controlled the human mind. I told Leary that based on some of the documents I'd read, it seemed that he could have been just one of many scientists who'd been used without his knowledge by the CIA to conduct their mind control experiments. I've known this for 10 years, Leary said. You were witting of it, I asked in surprise. Of course, Leary said, leaning back in his chair with confidence. I couldn't believe my ears. The CIA had created the psychedelic 60s with Timothy Leary's help? You were wittingly used by the CIA, I asked again. During the 60s, you knew you were being used by the CIA. (laughs) Wait, Leary said. When you say CIA, it's like saying N-word. But, you know, he he didn't say N-word. Um... I knew, <laughs> right. yeah, okay, yeah, that's an interesting comparison. Uh, I knew I was being used by the intelligence agents of, the, of this country. What were you doing for them, I asked. What the hell were you doing? Did they want you to turn the kids on, huh? Were they trying to make the kids see God and leave the Vietnam War alone? Walter, you are starting off into nationalism, Leary said, <laughs> trying to put me on the <laughs> defensive, exhibiting his fatal character flaw, sold on himself as a master psychologist, a master manipulator. I'm asking you, what was the CIA's motive? What were you used for? I said again. The CIA recognized what you probably haven't recognized yet, that I'm a very important national asset. What can I say? Leary said. That was Leary. He believed his own press releases. He lit his half-smoked joint and continued. Yeah, I saw in 1962 or 3 that there was a world struggle for the control of minds. That's a crude way to say it. I saw, after Hiroshima, there would never be a big world war. World war would be at the neurological level, not at the level of tanks and planes and bombs. I proceeded as an intelligence agent since 1962, understanding that the next war for control of this planet and beyond had to do with the control of consciousness, so I had to think very carefully about that. I wanted my side to win the war. There's no winning or losing, but I wanted my side to stake out enough territory. I'm talking about time territory, not space territory. Of course, (laughs) you need enough space territory to get your time to make sure that the particular version of the territory of consciousness I would be represented in. I believed, after studying all the other versions, that my philosophy of the future, skip philosophy, my Clausewitz tactics and strategy, or my natural chauvinistic consciousness commitments were very fierce and strong. I wanted my species to be recognized, understood, and have a strong single voice in creating the reality of the future. I wanted to create a segment of the future which I felt I would be the spokesman for. I let him talk. When he paused to catch his thought, which had drifted away on a puff of muggles, I repeated the question, did you ever wittingly work for the CIA? Yes, he answered strongly. I was a witting agent of the CIA, but I'm not a willing agent of Nixon. I did everything in my power to throw out Nixon. Parentheses, so it would appear, did the CIA. Um, I'm a witting agent in that I think Roosevelt was a disaster, but historically necessary. So pin me down and I'll tell you exactly what I'm doing for the CIA. What are you doing for the CIA? I said, disbelieving everything he said. I'm raising the intelligence of an elite, a very elite group of Americans, he said. So I think the future of freedom depends on a very small group of people who are smart enough to defend that liberty. 
So you work for the Central Intelligence Agency, I asked. Is it the direct deputy director of plans you work for? Who makes out your checks? It's none of your business to know how those things work. I'll answer you no questions that have to do with business. I'll answer you any question about history or people. He drifted off into a monologue talking about neurological cosmology, his outer space connections. Again, I brought the conversation back to the central question again. What year did you start working for the CIA? Well, I never worked in the sense that nobody ever came to me and said you would work for the CIA. Nobody recruited you, I asked. No, nobody ever recruited me. People came and advised me to do this or that. I didn't know that I was being advised by the CIA. I assume now that I was being advised by the CIA. But a moment ago, you did say you knew at the time. You said you were you were wittingly working for the CIA. Don't you understand, Leary Bart? I'm talking about a very narrow segment of CIA activity which has to do with personality assessment. The OSS was the forerunner of CIA mind stuff. OSS founded uh, Howard Murray, who was the head of the OSS, started the personality research. McKinnon, who was OSS, started personality assessment research so that all personality assessment in the 1950s was basically CIA initiated and uh, you know he lists like uh, 74 OSA staff members that developed personality assessment techniques that are still used to uh, select employees at the CIA and other uh, intelligence agencies Good grief, I said. I knew they supported Dr. Ryan's ESP experiments at Duke University. I didn't know that, Leary said, but I think they should have. And finally, the wine began to take effect, and the interview degenerated into speculation about CA's activities in various LSD research projects. Leary was curious about several of them, and he asked me to see if I could dig up some information for him. Leary asked me about other LSD researchers in the early days. He wanted to know about Walter Penke, and he was especially interested in, psychi- in the Czech psychiatrist Stanislav Grof who he said had been brought from behind the Iron Curtain to the U.S. to run one of the only official LSD research projects. You make love, you take love, you shake love Till those tears roll out of your eyes Beast, I've released the shackles and your leash is running down my street untied.
similar to very many CIA projects um, and all the records have disappeared. I think there's one more. Uh, yeah, there's the connections, to the um, human ecology fund. Um, but any, Oh yeah. You know what? Then he talks to uh, a guy that he calls Yogi, who is his cellmate um, and who doesn't like him anymore because he's a snitch. <laughs> Uh, but it said he was very popular for a while because they thought he was like the, the the acid king. Like he was like this badass of the, like the counterculture. But then they realized he's a fucking snitch. Um, yeah. So after this interview it was like all inconclusive, it was very bizarre. And he found a cellmate of Leary's. And he said that when Leary came back from his escape, you know, which was like supposedly the weather underground, he was very frightened. Quote, Yogi says, in Vacaville, he had one of the best positions. He was working in the education wing. He was making it with a pretty little blonde nurse. He was writing and doing meditation, but he was running scared. He was scared behind the Panthers in there. The way the CIA got Tim out of Algeria was they told him Eldridge Cleaver wanted to kill him. That's why Tim left. This cellmate of Leary's wanted to be identified only as Yogi. He said that Leary had some, quote, heavy friends in prison who protected him. But he let everyone down. It's a well-known fact they took him out at night. The feds did. Before he was testifying, they had federal guards with him at all times. In the end, he was in protective custody. When he was in prison, no one knew he was a stool pigeon. He was a hero. He was living on his rep like he was the head boohoo of the acid freaks. That was enough to protect him by the heavy hippies who looked up to him. All of a sudden, they took Timmy out at night. Usually when you go somewhere, you go by bus, but the feds took him by car. They stayed with him at all times. That's when we began to suspect he was working with the feds. He was still chief boohoo to most in prison. But then the word came down he was testifying on weathermen, and he even gave up his own lawyer and turned over the people who helped get him out of the country. He was giving out who was who in the groups, and they were doing smuggling, narcotics. He gave up all of that. They take him down to custody, and they talked to him. Obviously told him, if you want to get out of here, if you don't give us what you want to know, we're going to make sure that you die in prison. It was too much for him. I know they were coming regularly to make him turn over on his own daughter. He could have gone out in style. He could have helped a lot of people. Then everybody found out he was a fucking weak punk. I don't know anyone who really respects him. That's why I told him, uh, you know, the other night, there was a guy who came to do yoga classes. He says, that was a beautiful day. Ramdas came and all of us was there. Tim didn't even have enough class to show up. He said that Ramdas was a child molester and he didn't even want to talk to him. 
<laughs> so that's interesting. That's just like uh, pin that for later. Ram Dass, who everyone's yeah. like, be here now or whatever the fuck. Uh, he, uh, Tim Leary thought he was a child molester. Um, which honestly, reading some of these like stories about like you know orgies with like kids running around, like it's totally cool, man. Um, yeah. Anyways, uh, so yeah, he gets the, he gets it. the a lot of the. I feel like Hakim Bay is another person who was like a child oh, molester. A temporary autonomous people, zone guy. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. A lot of these people who are like get into like Eastern spirituality, like have some kind of like weird thing. Uh, mm-hmm. Anyway, yeah, yeah. Some of the Burning uh, Man people, but uh, yeah, ju- yeah, just to uh, um, finish this here, like what Yogi said, like Yogi is asked. Could Leary have been working with the CIA or FBI during the whole time he was in prison before his escape and before he came back? He sure could, Yogi said. He had to be something because the turnover like that with the rep he had with all the beautiful people. I know he got got a lot of good people, started on the spiritual path. He helped get a lot of people into meditation and yoga. He got a lot of good karma for that, but he's going to need it. He's a rat and that's that. Let God take care of him. He had to do it the weak way. And I guess they think oh yeah okay this is the interesting quote here that'll come in handy there's another guy who i guess was not his cellmate but like in jail with him a guy named ray spoke of the period when tim could not be found by his wife joanna or no he was his cellmate he said that one day leary was returned to their cell with his head shaved and blue lines painted on it tim quote Ray says, Tim got just about the whole works. He was a different type of case than I was. They felt that they could use him a lot more than someone like me. I was an unknown, but if they could turn someone like Leary around and get him to do what he's doing right now, in fact, he'd be very useful to the government. The high priest had to be dethroned. Tim is a very fascinating person. There's only a handful of people who did what he did, who took a whole generation and turned him on. That was a challenge to the feds, if they could find out how his mind worked and use him. Well, one day he comes back to the cell with lines on his head. They were actually very precise measurement lines. His head was shaved and it was marked with all these careful, precise blue lines. I asked him what the lines are for. He told me they were going to give him a lobotomy. They were going to stick ice picks in his brain. He told me it was going to be really great. They had him completely brainwashed. He said, quote, this is going to be the greatest thing. All my life I've been going through this. You, know, you get up, you get down. But now, he said, I'll be just as smart as I am, but I won't have to feel emotions anymore. Wow. You think they broke him? I asked. Ray said, totally controlled him. They gave him a lot of those fright drugs. They kept him in solitary. They did everything they could to break his mind, and they succeeded. Look at him now. Suddenly, he tells me he worked for the CIA for years, I said. Well, that may be one of the defenses. In other words, by admitting what you did, nobody believes it and make you look ridiculous. When they're done with you, and I've been through a lot of their drugs and tortures, at a certain state, you're really like a zombie. You're so conditioned chemically that a guy isn't even aware of what's happened. Leary bought the whole thing. They have really gotten good at it. You know, nobody's going to believe us. Leary would never would have gotten out of prison, Ray said. I, he'd either bend or they'd break him. No matter how sympathetic you may be, to really understand the situation, you have to go through it yourself. You say, well, they couldn't break me. I wouldn't do it. It just couldn't happen. But believe me, we are like just so much putty and clay, and we can just stand so much and when they're finished with the mind control, it's almost impossible to tell. So that's that's kind of where it's left. But damn, you know, I mean, that's a testimony from somebody who I think was in Vacaville with Tim Leary getting his head shaved, lines on his head, you know, and it really jumps out at me because I just rewatched. One flew over the cuckoo's nest, and like I apologize, it, you know, spoiler alert. I don't know. Have you seen that movie? 
Uh, yeah, a while ago. Uh, yeah, I think you me too. spoil the movie, though. It's pretty old. It's fine, yeah. Because, I mean, it really, that that anecdote jumped out at me because it sounds almost exactly like what happens to Jack Nicholson's character at the end of the movie. He, mm-hmm. you know, he pushes, the, he pushes it too far one last time. And then, uh, well, really because he, you know, he violently attacks Nurse Ratchet after the kid uh, kills himself. And then, you know, he comes back and there's the like, you know, truly kind of like heartbreaking scene where Chief like finally wants to escape with him and is like, I'm finally ready. You know, McMurphy, like, let's go. Let's let's get out of here. And he looks at him and he's like, he's lobotomized. He's a zombie. He's gone, man. Like they basically like almost almost worse than death. Almost it would almost make you. Well, I mean, actually, hold on. Think about it. What does Chief do in that final scene? What does he decide to do when he realizes what has happened to McMurphy? He smothers him because under the assumption, I think, that he would be more grateful to be dead than to be lobotomized by society and turn into a zombie. So, uh, yeah. Fare you well.
So that might have happened to Tim Larry in the mid to late 70s. And yeah, maybe. according to this guy, they could do it so good, it's almost impossible to tell once they put you through this process. And, you know, I mean, we could speculate all day about the Monarch Project and things like that. But this is definitely an environment where I think it's very easy to understand that, you know, if they were doing these experiments on prisoners, you know, prisoners, uh, by definition in our system, um, are, you know, deprived of their rights. And, you know, I think, and maybe there's something about, you know, taking kids and doing this to them uh, that seems too far out, you know, with a lot of people that hear those kind of, uh, you know, uh, conspiracy speculation. But when it's coming from people who have been to these jails and you kind of, doesn't seem like they really have much of a reason to lie in this specific way, you know, it, Mm -hmm. it, it feels intuitively kind of true. And then what are the implications of that? And what are the implications, you know, for the grateful dead as a whole, uh, you know, all of these guys and this, the whole new age movement, because, you know, we know that these guys went through some kind of MK ultra experiment. I'm not saying that they were, you know, psychologically broken and, and brainwashed, but there are a couple stories where a couple of the other major hangers on of the grateful dead, ended up in psychiatric hospitals as young men, uh, mm-hmm. one of which yeah, we mentioned Marlo, before. Uh, so, yeah. yeah, like, what did you find anything, like, fleshing out what the hell happened with John Perry Barlow in college? Um, I don't know beyond that he, like, I guess had a psychic, uh, like, a psychological breakdown, and he uh, tried to do a suicide attack. Uh yeah, I was. Uh, I first encountered that fact on Wikipedia when I was just looking him up. Because again, like you know, uh, when I first heard about him, I was like, um, you know, uh, so what did he do in the band? Because it could like it just doesn't seem to connect to me that like there could be a lyricist for the Grateful Dead of all things who wasn't even in the band. But yeah, so I was looking him up yeah. relative to that, and I came across it, and I kind of did a double take because it's like you know you see <laughs> attempted suicide attack, and you're like, oh, he had a failed suicide attempt. But then it's like, no, he tried to do, like, a suicide bombing at, yeah, like, in the 60s. Um, And uh, he he was, like... When he was at Wesleyan College, yeah, where he was the student um, body president, also. He claimed that. He claimed that, yeah. Um, I don't, Hmm. like, no one really knows if that was actually true, uh, but uh, maybe he uh, intended to sit on the lap of a statue and blow himself up. That was his idea. Uh, in Boston, he was going to do that. So he was the original Boston bomber. Uh, yeah. You know. that, yeah. Well, exactly. I mean, that that is like very, very bizarre. And also one thing that Apparently jumps out. Apparently he was on drugs at the time, I guess. Well, of course, uh, yeah, because but, you it, know. wouldn't you know, uh, if you had to guess, you know, uh, where did he get those drugs from? It turns out that he was a frequent visitor while he was at Wesleyan to Talk about the white Millbrook privilege. estate. Like he almost did, uh, yeah. I guess, you know, also pre nine 11 privilege, but he almost did the Boston bombing and like everyone at Wesleyan like came and like grabbed him before he did it and like brought him to a sanatorium. Yeah, uh, well, exactly. And you know, so he, yeah. he had been going to the Millbrook estate to visit Tim Leary and do LSD like during college, which preceded him mm-hmm. going on this like, bizarre suicide mission and then he was thrown in a psychiatric hospital afterwards i don't know which one or for how long he was in there but just kind of a bizarre especially for a rich kid from wyoming um 
I yeah, think. not a, not a normal event in everyone's uh, you know uh, late adolescence or you know uh, early adulthood to like try to do a suicide bombing and then be slammed into uh, a sanatorium. Uh, I mean, you know, people have all sorts of experiences, like a failed suicide attempt that can be kind of tragic. You know, I wouldn't necessarily hold that against you, but doing so many drugs that you try to like blow yourself up with a bomb which also Boston, makes you like move, that's what it makes you wonder like what exactly was he participating in as a young college student at the millbrook estate like were they doing experiments were they yeah. trying to hypnotize Possible people on lsd stuff uh, yeah, it makes you think of the Unabomber also in like, you know, a kind of a yeah, MK Ultra connected Northeastern elite school kind of, yeah. you know, somebody wedding off. But of course, John Perry Barlow, he, I guess, you know, facilitated the first connection between the Leary organization and the Grateful Dead. He was the one who's like, what you guys should meet uh, in 1967. Exactly. Um, and then he yeah. yeah he becomes this guy who is just, you know, traipsing around the country doing this and that. Um, I think if we haven't mentioned it yet that, you know, he comes from a wealthy Mormon ranching like dynasty kind of family from Wyoming. He's the son of yeah. a state senator, Norman Barlow, and was like the grandson of a Mormon pioneer. They had a 22,000 acre ranch. And uh, and I guess he kind of had the pick of elite Eastern schools because there were so few applicants from, from Wyoming. Also, he was like a rich kid and he went to mm-hmm. this elite boarding school in Colorado where he became friends with Bob Weir. So that, that's kind of the thread of their Grateful Dead connection going way, way back. But then, you know, he goes off to Wesleyan, then ends up hanging out with Tim Leary uh, on the Millbrook estate doing LSD and then something happens to him where he has a psychotic break and wants to become a suicide bomber and then he gets thrown in a mental hospital. And then afterwards, you know, he, I guess, uh, floats around. Wow, it's, this is funny. In college, I see from this uh, Reason article, he was talking about going to, uh, he was he was always had girlfriends at Sarah Lawrence because Wesleyan was like an all-boy, uh, all-men right. college at the mm-hmm. time. So he yeah. says, I, I always tended to keep some kind of relationship going with the student at Sarah Lawrence, he writes, so I could attend Joseph Campbell's lecture every Monday morning. Okay, oh, so cool. uh, and he's a lapsed Mormon. Barlow missed religious faith. Campbell's studies of comparative religion and mythology attracted him. So did LSD. At a Vassar mixer, Barlow learned about a communal group in Millbrook, New York, headed by psychedelic guru Tim Leary and funded by Leary disciples, who happened to be heirs to the Mellon fortune. Barlow visited Millbrook and thought it interesting, though he was put off by Leary himself. After some fast and furious research, he decided to take his first LSD dose back at Wesleyan. From then on. On, he writes, I was permanently rewired. At this point, Barlow's mutant propensity to live a mythological life really kicked in. He soon discovered that Weir was a member of a band. Aspiring to somehow get involved, he asked himself, what can I do for these guys to demonstrate my own mojo so I can be part of their thing? During the intermission at the first Grateful Dead show he attended, Barlow heard Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club band for the first time. The next morning, he bought the album and took Weir, bandmate Phil Lesh, and their respective girlfriends to Millbrook to meet Leary. Jerry Garcia, Mountain Girl, his, his later wife, uh, and the rest of the band came separately. The dead and their entourage quizzed Leary, whose high church view of LSD was decidedly different from their hands-on Mary Pranksterish approach, and they all listened to the Epochal Beatles album together. After the record was over, Barlow writes, Tim Leary stood up and in this incredibly pretentious, sententious, mystical voice said, my work is finished. Now it's out. 
Barlow was finished with Leary, <laughs> or so he thought. Um, yeah, I guess that's all in the first 50 pages of John Perry Barlow's book. Um, uh, one and, of the funny things uh, that uh, he wrote was uh, this manifesto called The 25 Principles of Adult Behavior. Uh, John Perry Barlow wrote this in 1997. Oh, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, they are, be patient no matter what. Don't badmouth. Assign responsibility, not blame. Say nothing of another you wouldn't say to them. All right, fair enough. Never assume the motives of of, of others are to them less noble than yours are to you. Uh, yeah, also, a lot of these are fair enough. Uh, one thing he wrote was, avoid the pursuit of happiness. Seek to define your mission and pursue that, uh, which he, I guess, was one of his favorites, uh, according to uh, an article in Forbes called The Pursuit of Emptiness. Um, where I guess hmm. they, they talked to him about this and he said that, uh, that uh, it was a way to challenge how one perceived their life, their job, and their goals in life to not see achieving happiness as uh, an obligation to uh, oneself, to uh, Jefferson, or to anyone else, hmm. uh, or, to, or to God itself. He, yeah, I guess he wrote this article in Forbes, The Pursuit of Emptiness. So again, coming, taking back to to thomas jefferson uh as well so we, yeah we, yeah well and also kind of, you know uh, he I, of course yeah. the most obvious jeffersonian thing he ever did was write the declaration of the independence of cyberspace mm-hmm. which is yeah. an incredibly influential and kind of famous uh uh thing uh where he you know he he kind of i mean he introduced kind of the the psyopy like matrix idea of what the internet would be that it actually kind of never was. And, you know, he, he set up the narrative kind of the mythology of the internet and set himself up as a kind of Jeffersonian defender of the open lands, you know, that the the World Wide web would be colonized by yeoman farmers and yeoman website farmers and angel cities and pages and uh, things like that. Yeah. It's very weird that he writes in Forbes, uh, be happy, but remember that happiness is a gift you owe yourself, not an obligation you owe to Jefferson, the United States or to God itself. Like, I don't think any, you know, I certainly don't think that like you're obligated to be happy by or anyone would say that you're obligated to be happy by God. Uh, I, but I guess like, you know, the pursuit of happiness is a right according to the, like, you know, that's the idea like that people are entitled to pursue it. Not that they're yeah. obligated. Like, I feel like there's a misreading even of, you know, I'm not like, you know, uh, a staunch like uh, constitution or declaration of independence, like defender. But uh, you know, I feel like that's a, a gross misreading uh, you know, I'm not a big Jefferson, uh, Jeffersonian, uh, freak or like a big proponent of him, but I feel like, uh, he's not been given his due there. Um, yeah, but, uh, I mean, his, his yeah. philosophy is kind of, if you didn't know he was from this like strange, uh, kind of powerful, like Mormon ranching family and like Wyoming and then like was really good friends with Dick Cheney and, yeah, uh, I see like, here also, friends. I, I did not know this, but uh, he actually, you know, he, he uh, it's so annoying. Like, look, just looking, this is the type of person that I feel like has, there. there's another narrative going on in this entire person's life, but it is presented to us to be like, look how free and cool and groovy America is where you can do all these things uh, where, you know, after, you know, instead of trying to blow up the statue of John Harvard and Harvard Yard, getting his life like ruined or anything like that, you know, he goes on to like graduate and then he talks his way out of the draft 
draft, gets accepted to Harvard Law School, sells his first novel based on a half-finished draft, and avoids either completing the novel or beginning law school by spending his advance on a trip to India where he dates the Dalai Lama's sister. Andy Warhol makes an appearance. So does Dick Cheney. And, you know, like, like, and then he's like hanging yeah. out with the Grateful Dead and going out to this, like, he's connected with another CIA agent, the Dalai Lama, and uh, somehow Andy Warhol, who maybe we'll get to him one day, kind of, I don't know. Um, yeah. I think we yeah. could get to him yeah. one day. I mean, he was the Josh Harris thing, you know. Uh, there was always he, those analogies between him and Andy Warhol, you know, trying to recreate yeah. the factory. Uh, Just another Mary Prankster. To, I wanted to bring up, like, another, uh, the other, like, big lyricist of the Grateful Dead, Robert Hunter, uh, mm-hmm. because he, I found, like, a very interesting, like, email exchange that he had. It actually links in very well to what we were just talking about, uh, because they actually, it, the email exchange took place, like, uh, in 1996, uh, and, you know, uh, into 1997, but they actually mention Timothy Leary's death, uh, yes. in the email, you know, and, like, kind of eulogize him. Uh, and the whole thing is about their DMT experiences. Uh, for those who maybe, uh, I feel like you know, a lot of people will know, but Terrence McKenna, like he's very famous uh, as like the you know the sort of innovator of the stoned ape theory, which you've probably heard in like mm-hmm. other permutations, oh, yeah. even if it's not ascribed to Terrence McKenna, Absolutely. the idea that like you know, our consciousness, like, comes from, like, taking mushrooms, like, cavemen, like, hooks and mushrooms, like, you know, and that's how we became, like, conscious, and, like, uh, you know, we're all very harmonious, uh, uh, or, like, whatever, like, it's bullshit, <laughs> like, it's complete bullshit that, like, you know, no one, uh, in their right mind, like, takes seriously, uh, and, like, there's all sorts of problems with it. He also propounded something called novelty theory, which he mentions in this email exchange, uh, mm-hmm. which I think is, like, kind of based on the idea. It really goes back to kind of what we were talking about at the beginning, like, this sort of, uh, convergence of the past and future, the, uh, you know, idea that, like, we're, we're gonna revert to in this kind of utopian uh, like, kind of it's, mur- didn't didn't mechanic archaic yeah archaic revival practices. right it wasn't archaic yeah. revival the term that McKenna liked to use for it yeah he might have uh, yeah I don't know if he uses the term itself in this uh, email but I think that he did in general, uh, call yeah. things an archaic revival yeah oh yeah he had a um, book yeah archaic he, uh, this is, yeah archaic revival speculations on psychedelic mushrooms the amazon virtual reality ufos evolution shamanism the rebirth of the goddess and the end of history wow a lot yeah, going exactly. on exactly <laughs> the end of history yeah so he basically thought that like all this stuff like you know psychedelic drug use like uh you know, uh, Grateful Dead type music, like that mm-hmm. kind of, uh, you know, uh, culture that was all like part of this like revival of what shamanism, like, uh, you know, ne- uh, Neolithic shamanism, uh, mm-hmm. like, or whatever, but big uh, DMT booster. Yeah. yeah. So he, w- well, this whole thing was all about DMT, uh, mm-hmm. Robert Hunter, who actually was like, you know, generally pretty taciturn, uh, and didn't, like, talk too much publicly about, like, his artistic process or about drugs and stuff, uh, wrote to Terrence McKenna, and, like, uh, you know, all this is a long thing that people should look into more extensively. It's called Orfeo, a dialogue between Robert Hunter and Terrence McKenna. It's been published online under that name. Um, and uh, Orfeo spelled O-R-F-E-O. Um, mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, so he reached out to Terrence McKenna, Robert Hunter, um, you know, the guy who... Uh, 
wrote some of uh, the Grateful Dead's uh, famous uh, songs, like uh, you know the blues for a lawn and whatnot, mm-hmm. and Truckin' or whatever. So uh, I hate truck. Truckin' is my least favorite Grateful Dead song, just for the record. Um, like yeah, and this <laughs> is the guy so who was like, "How mediocre. dare you, you know, change my lyrics?" Uh, but anyway, so he yeah. wrote to Terrence McKenna. He said, "Terrence." In reading your books, I was struck by how closely your DMT experiments paralleled my own. I wasn't surprised by the confirmation, as you might guess. I considered myself a serious DMT explorer between 1967 and 1969. I stopped only because I was told to, in no uncertain terms, by the, capital B, boss of that place. Three times, in fact, to my dismay. Disobedience was costly. I was informed that I'd been shown all that was mine to know, to use that and not try to extract more. I've written of the classes and varieties of DMT experience in a chapter of my journal, Memoirs, and will send it along at some point. The experiences were commanding and altered my grasp of reality. DMT invokes the various dimensions of its domain through pathways characterized by brisk rhythms. Robert Hunter. And Terrence McKenna writes back, uh, you know, it's amazing that, like, this guy who's incredibly pretentious, like, you know, and constantly is, like, you know, r- r- punching above his weight and, like, r- you know, uh, it has met his match uh, and mm-hmm. actually comes off as less pretentious than Robert Hunter. But anyway, uh, so he says, greetings, Bob. I was interested in what you had to say about being explorer of the DMT world until the management told you to stay away. I have heard several tales of psychonauts toking DMT and then seeming to break into a place where they were not only unwelcome but also unexpected. This is a hilarious anecdote. One person in particular, a composer, was literally thrown back to the beginning of time by an astonished and irritated Jabba the Hutt type who he surprised at its meditations. So some composer dude, like, took DMT and, like, he saw a vision of, like, a meditating, like, slug being. Jabba? That then was... Yeah, that, that, like, yeah, that was, like, Jabba the Hutt, and then, like, he was disturbed, like, while he was, like, meditating. I guess it was, like, Jabba the Hutt, but, like, if there was a Jedi, he was a Hutt, uh, okay, and, okay. uh, he was meditating, <laughs> and this guy intruded upon him, and then he was, like, uh, be gone, and, like, flung him to, like, the beginning of time, uh, like, okay, so... Anyway, I have never been told that I am not welcome, but find that it is harder and harder to get up the raw courage necessary to make the trip. It is almost as though a secret hides in and behind the DMT state, and that secret is both real and so unexpected that it would leave nothing of reality intact. The secret cannot be told, of course, or I would have told it, but it is something like, here we go, Mm. we are all gods. Oh, oh wow! What a secret! What a secret that you think that I could have never, I could have never guessed with the knowledge of gods. Wow. We are all omniscient except for the fact that we are so damn stupid. Oh, all right, okay. yeah, I guess okay. that's that. The last part I agree with. Anyway, it is interesting <laughs> that you were carriers of that information. Think about it. It is kind of a hyperspatial muse. We become carriers of some force we don't understand, bearers of the logos, I would say. Others see us as the typhoid Marys of meme pathology. But left unanswered in all of this is the question why? Why does the alien presence intrude in DMT? Why does it appear as it does? Is that how it wishes to appear? Why? Etc., etc. I enjoy the idea of a slow-moving dialogue. I hope this can continue. So Robert Hunter wrote a long uh, discursive response. I'm going to jump around because there's, like, a lot of it. But, uh, mm-hmm. you know, he wrote back, like, uh, you know, my personal take on the secret of DMT 
It was long, hard work making this world real. It was, and is, done for a purpose. To have others. To believe in them fully in order to experience love. It goes against common sense to try and see through it. Ignorance is the primary condition of Eden. But entropy is at work, and a world made for love is not satisfied by the transformational edict, eat and be eaten, but kills and does not eat. A sense of ultimate unity is lost, and a delusion of fundamental diversity breeds alienation. This is not Eden. Yet the monad does not face itself and subsume its creation. The failing would be eternal. Therefore, doors are open that enough of the plot is, quote, made flesh to allow orientation regarding the surface gist of the matter. Collectivism is a wrong approach to nostalgia for the purity of the monad. Oh, uh, here Healthy we go. diversity perpetuates the rationale of creation such as it is. Healthy men, women, races, and nations evolving gladly to a recognition of the source, rejoining it in a gradual and rejoicing manner, bringing in the sheaves would be a better solution to the human aspect of this work, and is a substance of sacred ceremonial. My take could be way off base, but anything more Gnostic is off-putting. Phil Dick fell down that sink. He has an annoying, like, habit of, like, calling people, like, he calls uh, Heidegger Marty, you know, mm. like, uh, as if he were maybe not they, a first I mean, maybe he maybe knew. They, yeah, maybe they he, met. He might have known these know. people. I mean, uh, yeah, Philip K. Dick was, lived, Philip K. Dick lived yeah. in Richmond around the same time that uh, Owsley Stanley lived in Richmond yeah. and was producing LSD and had, like, a scary COINTELPRO thing that made him, like, kind of lose his mind, uh... Yeah, right. so they might have yeah. known each other, and even Heidegger, right. I, I think. Uh, yeah, maybe here. I admire your work in the Third Reich uh, very much. Uh, Hank, Har- uh, Hank Harrison. Uh, yeah. Hank Harrison knew um, Marcuse. Marcuse. Uh, yeah, well, and, they like, talk a lot him. about like <laughs> phenomenology and Merleau-Ponty and like uh, Husserl. Like they talk about all those people like in this exchange a lot. Like they're both big admirers of the phenomenologists. Uh, mm. But uh, he also says like and Lovecraft. You know, I wouldn't doubt though he professed no belief in what he wrote. So, you know, he's kind of saying, like, uh, I could be wrong, like, you know, it might be more of a Yeldeboath situation, like, mm. uh, and I, that's what I think Lovecraft thought, even though he didn't say, you know, so, again, all these people love Lovecraft, and they think it's, like, so dope, uh, mm-hmm. and, like, so, uh, but anyway, so, uh, Blah, blah, blah. Nobody ever got rich peddling DMT. Okay, so yeah, then he ta- starts talking about one of our favorite DMT subjects. He says, uh, DMT is self-selecting. It knows who it wants for whatever reason it wants them. It scares the bejesus out of anyone else. Those who ought to have it will find themselves in possession of it like anything else. The human brain secretes it. In minuscule natural quantities, it's the fuel of fantasy, dreams, and visions. The alienness of the many realms of DNT is striking. This part, you know, I kind of agree mm. with uh, what what we've been said before. You know, yeah, like dreams and visions, like the the that's that's true. Like the, there is sure. a, like a reality or an ontological reality, of dreams and visions. But anyway, mm-hmm. uh, so he says the mechanical quote pixies, as you call them, for starters. I call them the Claxton men, with their <laughs> click-clack box joints and their interdimensional warp and woof. Though quote men, they are not. Or the, quote, firemen, those beings of fire who inhabit one of the closer home stations on the way, quote, out. Firemen? Uh, beings of fire? Uh, uh, Jin? Uh, 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 anyway. Yeah, uh, like tunnel to hell? What, wasn't that a grateful... Entirely, wait, uh, yeah, what, what's the Grateful Dead song about bu- going to hell? Uh, bucket to hell? Bucket, bucket to, to hell. hell. Yeah, he was hell. obsessed with hell. This guy was obsessed with hell, yeah. Uh-huh. They seem entirely unconscious of us. The pixies know we're there. They're not much interested, though. And then there's those elemental forces, summoning elementals, uh, I'm Crowley, mm. blah, 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 that descend on your room in a vortex and whirl all your property around your head, rattle your windows, even set your curtains on fire, and leave your nerves jangled for days. Ah, the memories. And the critters, such as you 
you pointed out, who wonder what the hell you're doing in their room. There's no time to explain, even if you could form words. And besides, who are you anyway? Anyone who has been surprised by heavy surf whirled helplessly and slammed on the sand has a reasonable metaphor for the power of DMT. Uh, you know, blah, 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 you know, you yeah. wrestle, he complains about religionists with their guaranteed eventual paradise, of which they know nothing, taking oh, it all okay. on faith, can't expect to understand or sympathize with those with a yen to storm the gate of heaven and see for themselves what all the praying's about. I'll stop <laughs> with this, ill-confident that I've moved slowly as I might be into the dialogue, but... Considering how much remains to be spoken, what with the eschaton and all, how slowly is it even possible to move? 23 Skidoo, Robert Hunter. He signed off uh, 23 Skidoo. Uh, mm, yeah, I guess okay. referring to number 23. But uh, yep, yeah, yep. I. Uh, um, so I guess, yeah, they're all ex- expecting the eschaton, uh, you know, to come soon. You know, that was like, well, uh, I think uh, Terrence McKenna believed in 2012 type stuff. Oh, no, he was a huge uh, promoter well. of the 2012 thing, which was like, yeah. I think, a pretty thorough bastardization of like interpreting the Mayan calendar <laughs> and stuff. Yeah, um, exactly. Yeah, definitely... Even S.K. Bain was skeptical of uh, that, which really yeah, says yeah. a lot. And, and um, I, I remember, like, because I moved to L.A. around that time, that ayahuasca, it was the first time I noticed ayahuasca as a thing that people were doing in kind of, the, you know, these groups and stuff like that. And, uh, and that was a common, it seemed like a common thing that was kind of woven in with that. I mean, obviously, there's the South American connection. And then, you know, we're going through like a, a, you know, dimensional shift and the higher frequency of consciousness, like all that classic new agey stuff was just kind of like focused into, okay, 2012 is going to be this like breaking point. And then um, obviously it didn't happen. But the thing about Terrence McKenna that is funny is that his like uh, his description of interactions with like the machine elves or the klaxons or whoever it is. Um, not only does it sound Robert Hunter like, is the one who believes in the klaxons. He oh, okay, that was Robert like, Hunter. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. I yeah. see. So yeah, McKenna was more about machine elves and stuff like that. Yeah, but, I mean, el- yeah, honestly, yeah, th- it's almost interchange. I guess they believe they were totally on the same yeah, wavelength. They're the same as thing. As, yeah, 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 yeah. 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 Just so like, I call them the klaxon men. <laughs> so, so then maybe uh, it's interesting. Uh, they're they're. There was an interview that popped up, you know, some people have uh, specified, you know, have speculated that Terrence McKenna, much like a lot of these Grateful Dead people, had some kind of intelligence connection. And like there's a little quote here um, from an interview where he's talking about being chased by Interpol after he was like traveling around Europe um, studying like, uh, I don't know, just like shamanic and and things like that. and uh, in like the late 60s, you know, he was in and out of Nepal and, uh, and sending hash back to America. So he got caught. There's like weird movements around this time. Yeah, he was forced to move to avoid capture by Interpol. He wandered through Southeast Asia, viewing ruins, collected butterflies in Indonesia, worked as an English teacher in Tokyo. He then went back to Berkeley to continue studying biology, which he called his first love. Note he fled to avoid capture by Interpol, but then after a time, he casually returns to Berkeley. Then, okay, so this is an interview. They're talking in general. They asked Terrence McKenna, I'm real curious about one thing. Why is it important for you to do this? I guess his whole, you know, project about, you know, entheogens. And he says, uh, I wonder myself, you mean I am, you mean am I the alien ambassador, whether I like it or not? Well, often when asked this question, I've said it beats honest work. I mean, my brother is a PhD in three subjects and works in hard science, and yet I don't think it's brought him immense happiness. Not that he's despondent, but I was always kind of a slider, you know? 
Certainly when I reached La Chirera in 1971, I had a price on my head by the FBI. I was running out of money. <laughs> I was at the end of my rope. And then they recruited me and said, you know, with a mouth like yours, there's a place for you in our organization. And I've worked in deep background positions about which the less said, the better. And then about 15 years ago, they shifted me into public relations and I've been there to the present. I think ideas get me high. And I like the feeling of understanding and I love diversity to the point of weirdness. And, you know, they, then they go on to say, I, it seems like there's more to it than that for you. <laughs> because, you know, yeah. being tuned in ideas and being turned on ideas, but one thing, but you can just keep that to yourself. The sharing of it is something else. I think that's what we're getting at. And he says, you know, well, one thing is I'm really fascinated. I think of myself as a pretty savvy person and not easily led into false dogma. Okay, so the guy that's like uh, the, the interacting with machine elves and talking about Robert Hunter about the Klaxons, um, <laughs> you know, he's a pretty savvy person. Kla- and, Klaxons, you know, Klaxons. Sorry, the Klaxons. Uh, you know. Uh, oh, and by the yeah. way, that was that was in a 1994 lecture at the Esalen Institute where he was mm. a regular presence. Um, so, like, you know, it's still not clear exactly, you know, what he was. Uh, but th- th- that's the point that I was getting at. Is he he's saying. So, like, the, I think even Terrence McKenna's brother, who Terrence McKenna died in 2000. So, in these kind of allegations that have popped up in more recent years, his brother will go and, like, get into fights with people who try to say that Terrence McKenna was CIA. And I guess, you know, the line on it, which is very similar to what people would say about everyone in the dead, is, like, when he says, I was recruited – and, you know, there's a place for you in our organization, and I've worked in deep background positions about which is less said the better, and about 15 years ago they shifted me into public relations. Uh, he's talking about the machine elves. Mm-hmm. He's not talking about the CIA. He's talking about the alien intelligence, like, that he connects with on DMT, obviously. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's like you can just kind of sell it off as, he, well, he's just being a little prankish and kind of saying, uh, you know, I was recruited. I'm an agent. and But, you know, you ask him, an agent of who? And he's like, I have the galactic intelligence, you know? And, right, yeah. Um, and it's funny, like, I'm... Right in the street. 
when they came back to town Why not a little more to live in Fill out the form Download the app Submit your face into the scanner Everybody's hunting With a smile Maybe not to, you know, preemptively absolve all these people. Like, by all accounts, like, Timothy Leary was a, pretty much a huge asshole. Like, his first wife mm-hmm. committed suicide. Later, his daughter committed suicide. He was a philanderer, like, a, a real charismatic, kind of just a con man. And I think all these people are kind of con men to a certain degree. But I wonder, you know, is that kind of enough for this level of wackiness to, like, sustain itself? And for these people who are so open-minded that, you know, as the old saying goes, their brains fall out, that they wouldn't kind of renounce their own philosophies at some point or make, like, a hard pivot away from it. And, like, none of them ended up kind of ever being that critical of psychedelics that they had promoted in the past. Like none of them had even done as much as like a juicy J, like, I'm sorry. I, I rap so much about like taking Xanax and yeah. like drinking lean at the same time. Like that was probably irresponsible. Like you'd never get any of that from Terrence McKenna or Tim Leary. Yeah. They basically they just like, it was awesome. Like, no, they, they don't, don't like, think you know, that they wouldn't see like, you know, uh, juice world or whatever die. Like, even if they did see like the equivalent of juice world dying, like they wouldn't think that they wouldn't blame it on like the, the beautiful drugs that like cause civilization or whatever. They would still, you know, uh, cause ultimately they aren't really that open-minded. They just like are like, you know, uh, and I mean like their beliefs now aren't really like that unusual. Like a lot of like people, you know, obviously not 
anthropologists, like, scientists, like, you know, anyone who actually, like, knows about, like, uh, the development of, like, human civilization or whatever, but a lot of, like, lay people or people, like, in the popular discourse, like, are partial to, like, stone ape theory bullshit. Like, mm-hmm. I've heard people, like, float like that to me many times in my day-to-day life, like, you know. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah. You know, like, uh, and, uh... Yeah, like, uh, their ideas, like, and they're very dogmatic about them, and, like, they clearly, like, are, you know, they may portray themselves as shamans, but they're, like, Terrence McKenna's not a shaman, he's completely self-absorbed, uh, which I feel like is not what a shaman very, is supposed to be. Very uh, similar to you know, Idris, very like, similar to, like, Idris Shah, but even yeah, kind of worse. more extreme. Honestly, yeah, ex- worse. More extreme uh, than Idris Shah. Yeah. Yeah, uh, or like less of an authentic shaman almost. But like, uh, th- there is an interesting part in this where uh, Richard Hunter, or sorry, Robert Hunter, gives his uh, theory of like stage presentation, which I okay. think is uh, maybe relevant, you know, to of course, you know, the Grateful Dead and everything. Uh, he says stage presentation is a mix of attitude and metaphor, assuming that content is metaphoric. Attitude inclines an audience to acceptance or rejection of the metaphor. Never mind, quote, real. Real is some kind of breakdown in the process, a microphone on the fritz, a busted string, a fire in the theater. But the audience is very concerned with the metaphor of, quote, the real. They require a beginning, a middle, an end. Stage context, wow. Very uh, condescending to the fans. Ugh, there's foolish audience. Anyway, the audience is a feeling of multiplicity, although they are truly only multiples of one. Some mighty subtle alchemy in that set of circumstances. But the performer or band or corps de ballet is also only one albeit a different one from the one of the audience, the presenter of the metaphor through the agency of attitude, as distinct from the receiver of the metaphor. A dissonance is created when a member of the audience decides to switch roles with the performer and draw the attention to himself. For a musical presenter, that would amount to catcalls, whereas a presenter such as yourself, one who encourages discussion, is involved in a more Byzantine interaction with the audience. Uh, from what you've told me, it sounds like you're often involved in situations where someone attempts to move the power of presentation from the stage of their own, uh, uh, to their own seat. I would think that grasping the structure of the audience dynamic in a theoretical way, keeping that in mind along with the actual subject of discussion, would aid in retaining the modicum of control which leads the audience to adoption of the metaphor under discussion, hopefully enlightening them to the nature of metaphor as metaphor, rather than allowing the talk to degenerate into picking apart the metaphor itself. Obviously, every metaphor is vulnerable, and attitude has as much to do with defending it as does adroit argument. Theorizing on what an audience is is one of my favorite on-the-road hobbies. It can be one sympathetic individual through whom you address the rest of the assembled persons, or it can be the self-projection of a hostile aggregate waiting for you to make one wrong move, then pounce, or you can see the crowd qua crowd. But one thing is certain. Both sides of the stage crave acceptance, the ground leading to a sense of mutual respect and unity of purpose, which is the desired outcome of performance art. You might even say, it's real. So, anyway, uh, I, uh, basically, this know, is all about, I, you know, this is kind this of sounds about, like, like, it sounds like, like, it sounds like Goebbels could have written that. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, exactly. It's funny because it's kind of like, I guess Terrence McKenna is complaining about uh, like going to academic conferences and stuff like that, and then people during Q and A's asking him questions mm-hmm. uh, about like you know and trying to like you know because uh, the way people always do in these Q and A's like trying to make it about themselves. Yeah. Uh, and Terrence would kind of being annoyed and be like, uh, you know, they're ruining my metaphors or whatever. <laughs> uh, and so like then he's like, well, this is how I think about like controlling my audiences, uh, oh, you know, or the, the audiences that I deal with. 
um, yeah. you know, uh, in order to make them, like, understand or enlighten them. So he does have some kind of, like, a uh, theory of this. Um, well, it's, yeah, it's also, like, it uh, reminds me of, of the intro to one of the, like, later episodes in um, Long Strange Trip where it plays some interview audio with, uh, with Jerry Garcia over, like, you know, shots of like the crowd at one of these shows, like in the seventies and like how just like, you know, zonked out and like crazy. And they're all chanting like for the dead to come on. And he said something about how like the interaction with the crowd, uh, always creeped him out a little bit. And the adoration that they had for him felt like something that was reminiscent, frankly, of fascism. <laughs> like he compared actually like the love that the deadheads have and like their large, like mass audience thing to actually it felt vaguely fascist to him and scary and like threatening. Like Sick. he was, he was assuming some kind of power that had a dark element to it that, you know, uh, I don't know that maybe, maybe he was or was not fully read in on. Or something, but you know, I mean, they did have that wall of sound, and it was pretty sophisticated for its time. And um, just to like slide in here, and I think we could probably, I don't know, this guy just to say, like Augustus Owsley Stanley III, who is the creator of the wall of sound, uh, who uh, much like J.P. Barlow came from a like wealthy, kind of powerful political family. Um, his grandfather, A. Owsley Stanley, was the governor of Kentucky, U.S. senator from Kentucky, and a congressman from Kentucky who, uh, ironically, was like, uh, or maybe not, was anti-prohibition in the 20s, um, but mm-hmm. came from like a very old line, like Democrat, like probably Confederate, you know, uh, <laughs> like, you know, Southern family. And mm-hmm. also like J.P. Barlow, it, it, it says rather cryptically here at an early age he committed himself to St. Elizabeth's Hospital in Washington DC. So here's another kid who ended up in a psychiatric hospital at the you know as a young man who knows what happened and I guess he went to the University of Virginia but then he dropped out and despite dropping out he was able to pretty quickly get a job as a test engineer with Rocketdyne in Los Angeles uh, which was a military you know uh, military industrial manufacturer and d- designing missiles he actually worked on the SM64 Navajo supersonic cruise missile and then after working at Rocketdyne which I feel like versions of that pop up a lot in uh, in Pynchon's work um, or you know ripoffs of I think Yo-Yo Dine is the one in Crying of Lot 49 that might be uh, a riff on Rocketdyne with actually that has weird electronic music elements. Like they go to a bar that people that Rocketdyne engineers go to and they only allow like electronic music. But this is like a 1965, so it's kind of weird, right? Um, mm. Pynchon trying to tell us something here. But anyways, uh, Owsley Stanley enlisted in the U.S. Air Force in 1956 as an electronics specialist for 18 months. He worked at JPL, Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena, and at uh, Edwards Air Force Base Rocket Engine Test Facility. After that, he went to UC Berkeley and started manufacturing LSD, though I'm not sure exactly how he learned about it. But I guess he ran and, like, read a bunch of chemistry for three weeks and figured out – again, this is a part of the story that feels like, oh, really? You know, he just magically, like, figured out how to make perfect LSD by himself uh, just as all the Sandoz supplies were running out uh, with, like, Leary and Kesey and all these people. Um, And then he uh, went down to L.A. to work for, like, a TV station where he made, like, uh, 300,000 hits and then returned to the Bay – 
1965, just in time for Ken Kesey's acid test, meets the Grateful Dead and, you know, allegedly is one of the main suppliers of acid for the acid test and then goes on to uh, produce something like, you know, 500,000 or a couple hundred thousand more hits throughout the Summer of Love and etc. So he's somebody that was like had incredibly sophisticated background in like electronic warfare (laughs) maybe and rocket engineering and things like that. It's again, like it's bizarre that, uh, that, you know, he also designed the very suspicious lightning bolt skull logo, like the main logo for the grateful dead.
Zola G. Like, uh, whether, I mean, they might have some awareness of it, but it is interesting how, like, it recurs. Um, and I do think that, like, there is the, I do think that, like, the, you know, DMT is produced, like, in certain natural quantities, and I don't necessarily think that there when isn't you die. some kind of ontological, yeah, yeah, exactly, and, uh, when you die, yeah, and I yeah. do think that there is some kind of, like, uh, uh, there is very likely some kind of ontological uh, reality that isn't often afforded to uh, some of those experiences that they have. Like, I do think that there's also aspects of it that are, are deceptive, but, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and it can't just be fully taken at face value at all. Uh, but, uh, 100%. yeah, there's mysterious aspects to it, but, yeah. Um, I mean, and, and, and you know, yeah. yeah, and also, you know, the assumption that somehow that the Enlightenment or taking this takes you out of the realm of the political is something that not not saying that I mean I think to whatever extent uh, there was a kind of you know like the weather underground tried to create a sort of um a praxis out of like doing LSD and like mm -hmm. urban Maoist insurgency <laughs> and like yeah. like Marxist Leninist Maoist insurgency tactics uh didn't really end up working uh very well and but at the same time. I think just, you know, if you're going to step into this this heady space uh, taking LSD uh, and then claim that you – and then follow this movement which doesn't want to be political or change the world. It's a kind of the supreme irony that they – it really was for dropping out, you know, becoming a deadhead, becoming really into this thing was like dropping out from society. And I guess maybe early on there was a feeling that – I don't even know if there's a feeling early on that this would lead to a sort of qualitative change in the culture, though I think it in a more broad sense, it did change the culture in terms of how we interface with like fandom and rock stars and rock stars as kind of cult icons or, you know, just pop stars in general as pop icons and stuff. Um you know, I think that uh, the Grateful Dead probably blazed some trails that, like, the scientists who created K-pop uh, probably, you know, found very useful. Um, and um, I'm being, like, half-joking when I say that. Mm -hmm. But, uh, but yeah, the, this, this whole – I think we could put to rest the idea that there was something kind of inherently, I don't know, culturally, socially, politically progressive. Oh, I think before we get out of there, maybe the main reason why – I don't think we we mentioned this yet, but we really have to – is that you know, going back to the beginning uh, of Hank Harrison talking about how there's always a bohemian culture in San Francisco. Oh, of course, that might make you think of the Bohemian Grove Club that was founded in the, in the late 19th century – uh, by people like Mark Twain and some of the rich robber barons in the city. Well, wouldn't you know it, uh, two members of the Grateful Dead, Bob Weir and Mickey Hart, are card-carrying members of Bohemian Grove now. And Whoa, I guess have been nice. for like 15 to 20 years. Groovy, man. And um, and so uh, that actually did get – I will give Deadhead the Deadhead community like a little bit of credit for basically saying like I looked on there's an interview where uh he's either talking about um his friendship for his admiration for Obama Bob Weir is and uh like the top comment is like uh vote like quote like voting for the lesser of two evils is still evil Jerry Garcia and you know there's a lot of there's a lot of kind of um I think maybe it's wishful thinking a, a little bit but there's I think uh, there's a lot of like pure deadhead pure hearted deadheads that feel like the dead have kind of betrayed that 
detached hippie purity that, you know, Jerry Garcia was a big champion of, but then he died in the nineties. So now the rest are kind of becoming, uh, they're cheapening themselves with, uh, you know, this, this thing I'm trying to see here, what Bob Weir, he told a kind of a sus anecdote that somebody asked him during an interview, like what's up with you and Mickey going to Bohemian Grove. And he relayed a story where he said, you know, he's just knocking back a few with general wild Bill Quinn, who was a top <laughs> OSS officer in world war two. was actually the guy that, that Herman Goering chose to surrender to at the end of the war. Then he became the former chief of operations uh, for the CIA very early on. He led a, uh, I guess, sort of commando regiment called the Buffaloes during the Korean War. Uh, He became the chief of information at the Defense Department uh, and was deputy director of the Defense Intelligence Agency, 1962 to 64, was the vice president of Martin Marietta, the aerospace manufacturer until 1972, and commanding general of the 7th army in West Germany in the mid sixties. And as a member of Bohemian Grove, one of the, the top line, like OSS old heads. And he was just talking, you know, it was just groovy to like hang out with this old dude and like, uh, have a few drinks and like a whole crowd gathered around us, man. And we were just like talking about all kinds of things and stuff. And like, you know, you got to get people like you got to open up minds, like wherever you can. He said some just not very convincing and kind of like, you know, he also said he hadn't been present for any virginal sacrifices and everybody laughed you know he had kind of hung a lampshade on it and um you know i guess in a different interview he talked about how like playing for a barack obama benefit like reunited the dead and he said that he's visited the white house many times he said quote i go there and i do business i feel like i belong there and then it was like, I mean, I feel like, you know, we all belong there, right? Because it's like the people's house. But, like, I definitely <laughs> feel like I belong there. And it's just like, I don't know, Bob Weir. Like, he seems like the most sellouty, uh, rich hippie. I mean, he always was kind of a rich kid, but he seems the most kind of if anybody like literally is like in, in the in the acolyte robes at the, at the Bohemian Grove, uh, I feel like <laughs> it would be maybe Bob Weir. I mean, there is that video which anybody can look up that uh, maybe I'll I'll put out in the closing music, uh, the Bucket to Hell song, which was mm-hmm. part of the suite of music videos they released in the late 80s for their In the Dark album, which has a very creepy cover where it's like versions of them, but they all look like ETs. They look like the the ET alien, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. I remember right. seeing it years ago. Like and literal it, E.T. Like yeah, like creep me out. E.T. It really fucking creeped yeah. me out. Um, but it's got some, okay, it has their like quote-unquote political song where uh, throwing stones where – a bunch of children uh, kind of start throwing watercolored balloons at like this Wendigo monster that is graffitied on a big mural on the yeah. wall. And it's kind of funny that, like you said, I think earlier that they call it like the most political. It's just kind of like politicians are like saying lies and, you know, it's like yeah, not yeah, really exactly. like, I think maybe yeah, this is about it saving like, the earth or something. Whether you believe in green or proletarian gray, like it's just, you know, all a shame. Which I wonder if he was at the like, Grove by then. Yeah, yeah, like it just gave me the idea that, like, you know, it, it's like, oh, yeah, everyone in like the Soviet Union wears like gray jumpsuits uh-huh. or, like, you know, uh-huh. like, what? Exactly. Like, uh, Not groovy, man. Stupid. Not groovy. Even though stupid. they had, yeah, exactly. they had, Not they had groovy. so many psychedelic bands that I am, I'm completely confident going on record. If we're just talking about like big jam bands that play psychedelic type experimental rock, I would 
pick at least like a half a dozen Soviet bands uh, or, you know, probably I probably could find a dozen bands from across the Eastern Bloc that would blow the fucking Grateful Dead out of the water. Like on a uh, sort of yeah. sonic level, like a hundred percent. Like it's weird that, but, the, but I feel like if you even if I ran into Bob Weir today and I told him about you know Skaldovie in Poland, like he would have never heard of them, or uh, unless his handler like briefed him and were like, "You need to make this type of music first, and then like make everybody do LSD or <laughs> something like that." I don't know. It's just very weird that like I mean, th- honestly, that's so embedded in the cultural imagination. Anything. Like, I really don't like the Grateful Dead. I would rather It's actually kind of, I'm sorry, it's kind of an insult to uh, a lot of the 70s bands because they had a lot more sweep and, like, precision and drama and ideas they were working with than just kind of, like, trucking, yeah, we're trucking, doing cocaine, and then we're trucking. Yeah, <laughs> like, I mean, I do you know. like music that has, like, poetic, like, you know, lyrics you can, like, reflect on or, uh, you know, something like that. And I like, you know, uh, sophisticated, like, instrumental music. But, like, I feel like the Grateful Dead is, like, the worst of both worlds. Like, the it lyrics really are, like, I- I- inane. And, like, the music, like, is just, like, jingle jangle. Like, I don't know. Like, a lot uh, of it really sorry. is. Sorry, it everyone is. out there who loves the Grateful Dead. Like, you know, uh, <laughs> I mean, I'm a Philistine. I admit, like, I have terrible taste in music, but I stand by what I said. Like, it's Jingle Jangle I will say they're and, not... Uh, they don't grate on me as hard, nearly as hard as fish who are another people that uh, I feel like yeah, I guess they inherited. Yeah, I, I feel like they inherited. Yeah. I feel like they inherited the op. So like now they're going yeah. around and I know somebody, I mean, I knew people in college that were like fish heads and stuff. And like, I've, right. I, that's something I've talked about. It's like a kind of a meme that like, Oh yeah. People that like love fish. Like it's just, yeah, I don't get sure. it. I, I literally don't right. get it. And like, you know, everyone, I guess the, the old saying was like, Hey man, you ready to get hooked? Uh, I have a friend who <laughs> had a friend who was a fish head who brought him and all kinds of, you know, he was brought to a fish show. It was like his first time. And that was like a phrase in the fish community where they would do this kind of put their finger in their cheek like they're getting fish hooked and be like, hey, man, cool. you ready to get hooked? <laughs> like, <laughs> That's cool. Yeah, I just I yeah. always thought fish like to- like they are totally devoid of any like uh, even symbolic, weird, occulty content. Um, I think the Grateful Dead has some songs that are better than jingle jangle but i think that the studio versions are the best sorry like i don't care like you need to play on time if you're a drummer you know what uh try like being a lead vocalist in the best-selling uh rock band in american history and also staying on time (laughs) like don henley did Um, uh deadheads uh, like you know uh he was Uh, able to do it why aren't you maybe like like you know, cut it, cut out the nitrous gas or whatever the fuck. Um, but uh, no, I, I, yeah, I think, I mean, they were like a good, if you think about them in the context of Jefferson airplane and kind of those like groovy psychedelic bands, like I think their 60s stuff, there's some good, you know, trippy blues rock. There's some good like 70s stuff, even their eighties album. Uh, the hell in a basket is like a corny track, but the video, I was telling you that it kind of felt like a perfect blend of Kenneth Anger and Smuggler's Blues in terms of like what uh, was going. Because yeah. there's like guys in devil costumes jumping around. Yeah. And like, right. but Bob Weir is dressed like Glenn Fry in like a Miami Vice outfit. And, um, and there's like a dominatrix and it's, you know, it, it's definitely spooky, but has that kind of like, we're just having a fun time, like kind of thing. But, you know, say if I'm going to hell uh, in a bucket or something, or is it hell in a basket? Mm-hmm. I forget. But he, at least he's having uh, a good time. Well, hell in a handbasket is the phrase, but hell in a bucket, I think, is the song. 
Uh, okay, yeah. If he's yeah. going to hell in a bucket, at least he's having a good time. So uh, that's where our that's where our culture and our society is going uh, to hell in a bucket. Yeah. Thanks to the Grateful Dead, a little bit. Um, when the snakes so. come marching in. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. So yeah, uh, all very very cool. Um, but yeah, I mean, yeah, it is like that's the thing. Like I think that. That is a trap, but I feel like we talk about some other day where, like, there, yeah, the whole like archaicizing aspect where it's like, oh, it's apolitical because we're like spiritual, you know. But mm-hmm. of course, like these two things are always like very heavily entangled, and one has to like navigate that. Like the idea that like spirituality is somehow tied to the past, and therefore, like you know, it transcends like the petty politics of modernity. Like you mm-hmm. know, no, like. There's still politics, like, you know, in, like, pre-modern societies. Like, if you have, like, the king and ki- queen of Ireland, like, they, you know, in this sort of fantastical fairy tale sure. sense, like, it's hard to pick up on. But they're in real life, you know, they might be embedded in, like, lots of spiritual paradigms and, like, uh, deal with spirituality, but in a very political way uh, at the yeah. time, you know. Yeah. But, uh, you know, so... These guys just uh, feel they're not very interested like in that. They, yeah. they, they're not interested in political economy. They hate, like, collectivization or collectivism of any kind. They're still fundamentally, like, highly anti-communist, which is, like, you know, really the, the, the biggest red line in 1960s America that if you were, you know, no matter how outlaw you were, if you're, like, a neo-Nazi, like, LSD-dealing biker... You're not that much outside of this. I mean, I, I take them at their word that they're right, that they are a deeply American band and not that's not necessarily a compliment, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. like in a sense of like they're desperados. They're like settler colonialists of your imagination and your right. your soul. Like that's kind of the in a way that's kind and that's what the Internet and Silicon Valley have ended up doing. Like they are the settler colonialists of your like imagination of your mind and mm-hmm. uh the grateful dead of like your mind body and soul the whole thing mm-hmm. and uh and but they're still approaching it from this kind of attitude of like both like libertarian kind of like homestead act kind of um plot your piece of land and don't tread on me and uh that kind of thing and also maybe a kind of manifest destiny of like we need to go to the stars and link up with our AI machine of gods and live and transfer our consciousness to computers, uh, which Tim Leary yeah. was really all about at the end of his life. Mm-hmm. Um, right? So, yeah, the great event must happen. Yeah, and like same old really, same like, old narratives all coming up. The philosophy up. that they propound, like yeah, now it is like that. It is the completely the new status quo where like. I actually read this, uh, just, like, one last thing. I mm. read this, uh, you know, a little bit of this book, uh, you know, very theory-heavy, but it's called, uh, I came across it because it mentions Grateful Dead. Uh, it's called I'm Not Like Everybody Else, uh, Biopolitics, Neoliberal, ne- Neoliberalism, and American Popular Music by Jeffrey Nealon. Mm. Uh, and he even had a chapter in this book called Steal Your Face, where he talks about uh, this uh, 1967 special report from CBS uh, that was called uh, The Hippie Temptation, and mm-hmm. it was about the growing youth menace in San Francisco. And mm-hmm. he used the Grateful Dead as his main example, uh, and he said, you know, uh, like, uh, the interviewer asked the dead what they hope to accomplish by non-participation in mainstream social life as we know it. Uh, why not get with a disciplinary society, get a job, get married, start a family, grow up, damn it. 
Various members of the dead reply by insisting they don't want to accomplish anything. They just want to live free from interference by the man, which will, of course, later become the mass individualizing mantra of biopolitics. As mm. Reasoner, who's the host of the program, notes, the hippies exemplified by the dead, quote, do not want the existing disciplinary identities, worker, family member, citizen, soldier, that, quote, our civilization offers them, quote, except on their own terms. They recognize mm. the immense problems of society, but their remedy is to withdraw into private satisfactions, uh, which Reasoner concludes is, quote, the greatest waste of all. The whole, uh, <laughs> then the author, Neelan, says, the whole thing is pretty funny in retrospect, but what's most peculiar about the hippie temptation is that its tone and demeanor, disciplinary power wagging its fingers at people who only want to be left alone to self-actualize, looks like something completely foreign to the American present, even though it was only a half century ago. If nothing else, watching the show today makes it crystal clear that the hippies and their biopolitical sense that all revolution starts with and moves through the revolution of the individual won the American culture war decisively. In the mm. neoliberal world of radical just-do-it individualism, all but gone are the imperatives of reasoners' disciplinary world, where we're supposed to sit down, shut up, and do our jobs for the greater glory of society. Mm. Even the U.S. military, which would seem the last bastion of this kind of disciplinary thinking, sells itself these days as a biopolitical self-actualization technique. An army of one. Uh, Ooh, that is fire. That is real fire right there. I think that yeah. gets to it. You know, was this the real acid test to boil away whatever residual instincts or attitudes of collectivism existed in American culture at the time to sort of reformulate also in a society of the spectacle way to uh, like alienate everybody and then bring us back together but through a mediated thing so that we're all yeah, kind of alone together. Better. They were actually better at like capitalism or having an ethos like uh, for, uh, you know, that was uh, well adapted to like the at least like neoliberal like regime that we currently exist in. Absolutely. Um, but, absolutely. Know, like and that's even joked about, about ironically is that yeah. they were such good. They were such good businessmen at like building a brand, even though they did it their way. You know, all the record people were like, come on, like make a hit record. And they went out and built this sort of cult following, like literally a cult following and, you know, uh, push their memes out there. Just like the images of the bears and the skull and all these things where it really it in a way mattered less about the actual content of what they were selling than it was like the idea of something a certain idea of individualism that they were uh, like mm -hmm. or individualists uh, radical individualists kind of united uh, it's like a libertarian party convention the fucking yeah. grateful dead show you know and, and how it was prophetic in a way yeah, and the irony of it is, like, now we don't have a choice but to exist in, like, under this paradigm where, like, you know, the ultimate imperative is to, like, you know, uh, you know, be yourself and, like, actualize yourself and explore, like, you know, your own, you know, like, th like that's what is, like, ironically kind of forced upon us is, like, the idea of, like, you know, uh, it, this, uh, like, supreme, like, individual uh you know uh self-actualization like spiritual exploration it's paradigm. the neolib uh, hell yeah. that we all yeah, like that we all know yeah, about tyranny you know of choice. yes yeah yeah uh, yeah like those yeah. uh you know live laugh love do you you know uh follow your bliss uh all all this kind of you know psyopy culture stuff that is yeah this is absolutely a much more pervasive. eloquent this is a much more eloquent way of saying what I was just saying that Neil had says. In a biopolitical society, however, 
Subjectivity as norm-busting transgression is the norm and rule, so the contemporary function of authenticity discourse, musical or otherwise, is largely left to push against an open door. Mm. Uh, so yeah, like an endlessly open yeah. door. Just yeah, mm. like open that door in your mind yeah, until your like brain falls the whole, out. But we still got all this like fake, like you know, we're rebelling like, against like this, you know, thing that is now not really operative. Like the whole idea yeah. of you know this uh, like ch- disciplinary norms. Like now the disciplinary o- norms are like just do it. You know, mm-hmm. uh, I'm just yeah. actually just to, as a funny kind of end note here. Uh, I was up in the the Bay Area like a week ago, and I went to like kind of a a nice uh, the. the the little coffee shop uh, that was open. It looked pretty new. And just to show kind of the influence of like in the Bay Area, the, the epicenter of all this, of, you know, where it's at today, there was like a wall filled with like stock, like positivity phrases. Like the wall is decorated with just mm-hmm. these like blocks of, uh, let's see, the giving of love is an education in itself. We shall never know all the good that a simple smile can do. Alone, we can do so little. Together, we can do so much. Real education should consist of drawing the goodness and the best out of our own students. What better books can there be than the book of humanity? Virtue is bold and goodness never fearful. The two most important days in your life are the day you were born and the day you find out why. Strive not to be a success. Oh, this is the creepiest one. And I think maybe we'll end here. Strive not to be a success, but rather to be of value. Cool. <laughs> so it's like uh, literally that's still probably just... better than the lyrics to blues for Allah, but uh, you're right. Yeah, uh, uh, or U.S. Blues. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, you notice that he kind of, you know, one of the lines in that is like, "I'm gonna, I'm gonna share your wealth. You know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, mm-hmm. like, I'm gonna drink your health, share your wealth, uh, run your life, and steal your wife." So he's basically saying what Alec Jones is saying of like, "You got the communists taking over, kid. They're <laughs> gonna be making your, they're gonna shoot you in the back of the head, and, like make your daughters like dig ditches in the fields. You know, like <laughs> yeah, exactly. basically they're gonna steal yeah. your, they're gonna steal your wife. Yeah. They're gonna kill you. They're gonna share your wealth. Ew. Mm-hmm. You know." Given that this is like in the the tail end of the Vietnam War and they released this album during Watergate and stuff, it's just like that kind of ironic detachment that we've criticized in other, you know, mediums before that the Grateful Dead uh, really were uh, the the lead jesters of, of this this ironic posture towards uh, the man, as it were. You know, how far does that really take you? And did it really do anything beyond like prepare the ground for neoliberalism to absolutely pervade every aspect of our lives. You have been listening to a special presentation of the Warlocks of Palo Alto, The Grateful Dead Steal Your Face, Part 2, Episode Number 34 of Subliminal Jihad. Thank you very much for listening, and stay vigilant. Stay vigilant.